Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. In the NOCO is supported by Blue Federal Credit Union, with locations from Denver to Cheyenne, helping members tap into the power of community. More information at bluefcu.com. This is Colorado Edition from KUNC. On today's show, we hear about plans to reopen the Table Mesa King Supers that was the location of a deadly mass shooting in March. And we hear how a former store manager is moving forward. Plus, with more folks getting the vaccine and public health measures slowly relaxing, music venues are starting to get back into the swing of things. We'll head to a bluegrass venue in Lyons to hear about the comeback of live music after a long pandemic. You're listening to KUNC's Colorado Edition. I'm Henry Zimmerman. The flowers have all wilted and dried at the fence along Table Mesa Drive in Boulder, which has served as a temporary memorial for the 10 victims of the King Super shooting. The posters are fading there, and the crowds have largely dispersed as the South Boulder community begins to move forward from the March 22nd tragedy. Melissa Reeves is a psychologist, an author, and a national expert on prevention and recovery from mass trauma. She says that moving forward from events like this can take many shapes. A challenge for a community in the recovery process is how do you come together to find some common ground? Because it's a rare occasion that you're going to make everybody happy with the decisions that are decided about the space. And speaking of those kinds of decisions, last week, King Supers announced their decision to reopen the store by the fall after a complete remodel. The company has pledged to listen to community input on what the redesign and reopening will look like. But the members of the community who spent the most time there before the shooting are the people who worked there people like Mike Engelhart. The 50-year-old father of four worked at the Table Mesa King Superstore for over three years as an assistant deli manager. KUNC's Ray Solomon spoke with him about the plans to reopen the store and what moving forward looks like for him. So, Mike, you were not in the store when the shooting happened, but how do you think about that day now? I mean, it was a devastating day, you know. Um, I didn't know that anything was really happening there. I thought I had to work that day. So I was actually on my way there and then, you know, realized I was supposed to be there that night. And then my son started blowing my phone up. And then when I finally talked to him, he told me that there was an active shooter there. And, uh, you know, of course, the first thing I thought was everybody I work with. I mean, I work with some great people. Everybody's like friends and family there. I mean, we see each other more than we see our own family, you know. It was definitely devastating to think of anybody there getting hurt. Did you know any of the victims well? Ricky Olds, I talk to her every day. I mean, uh, just a couple days before this happened, she was showing off her tattoo that she got, you know. I mean, they were great people, full of everything, you know. Danny Stong, he was probably one of the most ambitious 20-year-olds I've ever met in my life. He had, there's a Geico commercial and there's the camel walking around saying, uh, what day is it? That's what he would do. He would come through, especially if it was like Wednesday. He'd be like, Mike, 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 what day is it? Hump day? Kind of our thing, you know, and um, he was really into like guns and black powder guns and stuff like that. And he was getting his pilot license. And I mean, we talked about all that stuff all the time. You know, like Ricky and Denny, you know, I have kids their age. I thought of them as kind of like, you know, kid type, you know what I mean? I understand that King Supers was really sort of a community center for South Boulder. Could you tell us a little bit about what it was like to work there before the shooting? 
it was great. Like, you know, almost all the customers that would know you by name, they would go out of their way to say hi to you. A lot of them, if we seen them like in the produce area or another area, we would go out of our way to say hi to them. You know, it was, we knew the customers almost as well as we knew each other. I mean, they shopped there every day. They would come up to the counter. We knew exactly what they would want and we'd get it ready for them before they even asked. King Supers is giving you and your coworkers emergency pay through mid-June without having to work. Since the shooting, I understand that you've started working at another store in Arvada. Could you tell us why you decided to continue working? I just need to work. I need to stay busy. It was a devastating thing what happened in Boulder. But at the same time, I just believe that you need to live every day to the fullest. And if you live in fear, then you've already lost the battle. What was that like to return? I've only been back to work for about a week now. It was really weird, especially to go to a different store where everything is different. We had such high standards for our store. No matter how much everybody complained about having to go to work every day, we loved the place. Have you been back to the South Boulder store since March 22nd? Yes, I've been to the Resource Center, been to the Memorial. Um, It's very heartfelt, you know. There's sad memories of what happened, but at the same time, I try to think of the happy memories that I had with those people, and that's what keeps me going. A few weeks ago, King Supers organized a tour of the building for employees. You decided not to join that tour. Can you tell us about that decision? I didn't feel like the walk would add any kind of closure. I didn't really want to see the store in shambles like that. I'd prefer to just remember it the way it was. Do you have coworkers who did go on that walk? Have you discussed that with them? Quite a few of them did. And some of them, you know, um, it did add like some sort of positive closure to things to where others wish they wouldn't have done it. You know, with the ones I've talked to, it's kind of a mixed emotions there. You mentioned that you want to remember the store as it was. Now, the company has announced that they will be reopening the store this fall. And what would you like to see happen there? You want to remember the store as it was. So is it important to you that it look different when you go back? I think any change they make, I hope it's going to be for, you know, uh, a positive thing. Because I don't know, I, I think it's important that they, you know, reopen that store. The last thing as a community we need to do is let them win and, you know, pull up roots and move somewhere else. And I know that when they do reopen the store, there's not going to be any memory or any thought that's lost for the people that were there. The Kroger company has said that they're going to seek out community input in figuring out how to remodel the store. Are you planning to offer any of your input? If they were to ask, yeah, I would probably offer some sort of input. But at the same time, it's a corporation. So they kind of have a standard setting of the way they want their stores to look. And I understand that and I respect that, you know. Don't think it's going to be a whole lot different. You know, maybe a different floors, maybe different, maybe pictures on the walls or or something. I don't know. But um, I don't think it's going to be a whole lot different. Have you felt supported by the company? The company has been great offering resources and assistance and stuff like that. But the union that represents us, the UFCW, they have been magnificent in making sure that every employee gets the, uh, you know, whether it's counseling, assistance with bills or, or whatever the case may be. The way they have worked with the company to help every employee get what they need has just been remarkable. When the store does reopen, do you plan to return there? Or are you going to go back to working there? My whole goal with the company has always been to advance and move forward.
I'm 50 years old, so I don't plan on looking for another job. You know, this is my career. It's kind of hard to say if I would go back, depending on where I'm at at that time. I mean, if there was a position available and I felt that it was a positive change for me, I would absolutely go back because I, I would not be opposed to that whatsoever. Can you talk about how you're preparing yourself for the day the Table Mesa King Supers reopens? I don't think you can really prepare yourself. It's kind of an anticipation that's building up. Like, oh my gosh, I wonder what they're going to do. I wonder if the deli's going to be the same as it was. I wonder if it's going to be where the meat department was. I wonder, you know, it's just more of an anticipation. I don't really think there's a way to prepare necessarily for it. When there's a permanent memorial, which could be a few years away, how would you think about that? I think it just kind of depends on how you look at it. With me, I don't think it would be a negative thing. I think it would be great to have some sort of memorial there because I want to remember those people for who they were, not what happened to them. Mike, thank you so much for speaking with us. Yeah, no problem at all. That was KUNC's Ray Solomon speaking with Mike Engelhart, a former employee at the Table Mesa King Supers in South Boulder. As more coronavirus restrictions are lifted, health officials continue to stress the need for vaccinations to keep the virus and mutated forms of it from spreading. On Thursday, Governor Jared Polis announced a change in the way vaccine supplies will be handled. And we want to miss uh, no opportunities to vaccinate somebody, uh, even if it means puncturing a multi-dose vial to administer a vaccine without having people lined up to receive each dose. We are adopting the CDC guidance here in Colorado because we want as many people as possible to receive the life-saving vaccine. And our supply level now allows that. When vaccines first came out, the state was more concerned about getting every dose into an arm as quickly as possible. Now, Polis says they're focused on finding and getting it to people who are unvaccinated. And while some of those who are fully vaccinated are now out celebrating their new freedoms, others are worried about those who aren't getting the vaccine. KUNC's Scott Franz has more on how residents statewide are adapting to this latest phase in the fight against COVID-19. The visible signs of a deadly pandemic are fading inside the state capitol. The crowds have returned, and people like Brett Frizzell are even taking off their masks deep inside the poorly ventilated building. So I've done both doses of Moderna, and so, you know, I'm following the guidelines that they're trying to set forth for us. The Commerce City resident is here to testify on a bill, and he's one of the more than 2.3 million Coloradans who have been fully vaccinated as of mid-May. So if they're saying I'm safe now, that's where I have to listen to, apparently. But many scientists believe Colorado is still well over a million doses away from reaching its goal of herd immunity, or 78% immunized. A few months ago, people were scrambling to get vaccine appointments. Today, the pace has slowed dramatically. I don't feel that it benefits community-wide for me to be vaccinated. Carl Watson is a property manager in Telluride. He had COVID-19 and says he has antibodies to fight against it. And if they go away, he's still reluctant to get vaccinated, saying he doesn't want to be a, quote, guinea pig for something new. I don't feel like the argument that we have to keep each other safe is a necessarily valid argument in a time when you know, so many things can go wrong in life. I mean, I guess that's any time. In Cortez, Stephen Loomis is also declining the shot despite being at a higher risk from the virus as a smoker. I was always iffy about flu shots and all that, so 
this vaccination is different. The RNA to your DNA and all that, like that's just kind of got me, you know. It's not long-term study, so I'm really iffy. It's the right thing to do. Laura Turk lives in Buena Vista. She's been vaccinated, but fears the hesitancy shared by people like Loomis and Watson will end up hurting everyone. There is a concern that especially the populations that need it the most might be reticent to get the vaccine and that will be stuck in this cycle forever. In the town of Ridgeway, retired dentist Don Schwartz is also worried about others, but especially the tourists who will soon be coming to the area. I'm very concerned that people are not stepping up and having this done so easy. There's not a problem. Most people have almost no symptoms. And uh, um, concern in Uray County simply is we got a lot of people coming in. But even with mask mandates lifted in Colorado, those we spoke to who are fully vaccinated are still approaching things with an abundance of caution. It's nice to uh, see activity picking back up. Pete Kolbenschlag of Delta County is starting to venture out more, despite only 40% of his county being inoculated. I've been out to eat a few times. Uh, I've uh, been to the brew pub and uh, doing some things like that. So uh, that's great. While Bronwyn Berry, who lives on the Lamborn Mesa near Peonia, is taking it slowly. I am paying attention to what hopefully will be an increased likelihood of herd immunity in the near future, but I'm not venturing out into crowded areas. I'm not going to big parties. I'm just being sensible for somebody my age, which is 65. Less than a quarter of Colorado's 64 counties have vaccinated enough people to be close to achieving herd immunity. Rates are higher in the Denver-Boulder areas, where vaccination rates fall between 60 to 70 percent. But others, including Washington County on the Eastern Plains, have inoculated less than a third of eligible residents. I'm Scott Franz at the State Capitol. listening to Colorado Edition from KUNC. Mask mandates are dropping around the state and at various stores and restaurants. Capacity restrictions on crowds at outdoor places like Coors Field and Red Rocks are also being loosened. As live music events continue their steady return, KUNC arts reporter Stacy Nick stopped at one venue in Lyons to find out how the return to normal feels and sounds. Planet Bluegrass in Lyons is synonymous with the music genre, but the venue has definitely had its share of ups and downs. A 500-year flood ripped through the town in 2013, submerging the venue and causing more than $2 million in damage. I guess I'm a little worn out, you know. I kind of forget the, about the flood a little bit. That's Planet Bluegrass president Craig Ferguson, who says at the time, it seemed like nothing could ever match the difficulty of that event. Then the pandemic hit. We had that flood in September and had that festival the upcoming summer. Uh, this plague was not quite as forgiving. For the first time in its 30-year history, the organization had to do the unfathomable, skip an entire festival season. But this spring, Planet Bluegrass, like other outdoor venues, has already returned in a big way, with 29 concerts before Memorial Day. 
And while the audiences have been smaller in order to follow health and safety guidelines, emotionally, Ferguson says these shows have been huge. Well, every show, someone comes up to me with tears about just how it makes them feel. And it's pretty easy to see the look on people's faces. It's real raw human experience. Uh, most of it is joy. You feel like it's joy and relief and almost just a release. And people are like, oh, okay, finally, the world, maybe we'll get back to normal. Here's a start. And so Planet Bluegrass is just, it's sacred grounds for me. You know, it's the festival time where you can really cut loose. At a recent concert, Matthew Altman of Denver said normal for him was coming back to Planet Bluegrass. This will be my ninth show for the Springgrass series here at Planet Bluegrass. Oh. Yeah can't get enough of it. I mean, it's such a beautiful venue. They've done such a good job of coordinating people off and separating people. And This is my first show back since the pandemic. Jeannie Schubert of Lakewood says the long-awaited return to live music has been worth it. So many of us have been through so much this year and to be able to come back here and have this a new beginning back to, you know, back from the pandemic it just means a whole lot, you know, and family and friends being together again. It's just, uh, it's heartwarming. It's that way for the artists coming to play as well. I want to be like a bird or just a feather that you place into your hair or the wind that picks it up. After the show, Colorado singer-songwriter Bonnie Payne reminisced about her first live performance since the pandemic began. It was lovely. Just to see people together is really, really nice. I think it's important for us, and I know it's important for us now. And um, it felt so good to play music with other people. I've been playing music by myself for so long. Next up for the venue is Rocky Grass in July and Folks Fest in August. In the meantime, Craig Ferguson is preparing for the crown jewel of the season, the Telluride Bluegrass Festival in June. Surprisingly, Ferguson says the constant changes in safety precautions haven't been that stressful. You know, it should be, but it's not. I think we're all used to not knowing that we don't, I think, at least me, I feel like I don't expect to have it together. I don't, I don't think it's really realistic. That'll probably, as we get two or three weeks out, it'll probably change. And just a few days after this interview, things changed again when Governor Jared Polis lifted the state's mask mandate and social distancing requirements. He also said capacity limits and other health precautions, including at venues like Planet Bluegrass, will be phased out by June 1st. The Telluride Bluegrass Festival kicks off June 11th. Stacy Nick, KUNC Lions. Housing prices are exploding across the state, not just along the Front Range, but in the mountains and the Western Slope. That's got many residents thinking about the state of Colorado's housing market and where it could go from here. 
For our last segment, we're going to hear about the housing market from a My Colorado essay submission. Our current theme is A Changing Colorado, and our essayist today offers his perspective on the housing market through the price changes of one home in Fort Collins. I'm Kurt Lyons, and this is my essay on A Changing Colorado, as told from Fort Collins. I once saw a cartoon in The New Yorker that said, I love everything about the neighborhood, except the people who can afford to live here. Over the last few decades, I've had the privilege of calling Northern Colorado my home. I'm very proud of my adopted state, but at the same time, I worry about some of the change I'm seeing. There's a joke about mountain towns today, whether it be Telluride, Steamboat, Aspen, or Jackson, Wyoming. When it becomes popular enough, the billionaires push the millionaires out. Historically, many of these towns had fallen on hard times, often the mining dried up, but they were in beautiful, picturesque places. At some point, hippies, ski bombs, and artists discovered the place and started moving there. Then the word got out on how cool these places were and the competitive buying scramble was on. Eventually, the key to entrance was simple. Can you afford it or not? I'm fond of saying this is actually the last legal form of discrimination, and I fear that Colorado has now become the mountain town for the entire country. This is a glimpse of one house over the last 15 years or so, and what it tells about the housing affordability of Fort Collins, my city for almost 30 years. The house is located on a nice tree-lined street, the kind that makes you wanna walk around and wave to your neighbors as they're sitting on their front porches. And when I got married, like most people, I wasn't expecting it to end in divorce. I also wasn't expecting that job security could sometimes be as dicey as marital security. So in 2007, I was still married, but I was in a particularly rough stretch, bad enough to lead me to pay attention to houses that were for sale in case I actually needed one for myself. And I found a great one for sale, and it was $175,000. This was actually something I could swing if it came to that. Sure, it was a little rough around the edges, but I was all about the sweat equity, and I could live in it while I was fixing it up. It was small by today's standards, but it had old house charm, or what I like to call soul. Well, a few counselors, and a few years later, my marriage ended in 2011. Of course, that house had sold, but by 2013, I could have bought it for $272,000, 155% more, except I could no longer afford it as a single person. That was just out of my price range. Then in 2014, the house was again for sale, having been bought this time by an investor as a flip. Now the selling price was $619,000. That's a 354% increase. Six years later, in 2020, the house sold again for $725,000, in 13 years. Although not currently on the market, its estimated value is $784,000, basically a 450% increase since that little house first caught my eye. You could say, yeah, but that's only one house. But if you do a little research, you'll find this story is becoming more and more common. For six years, I worked with the city on housing affordability. So I can attest it's a very complicated subject. 
There's market forces, zoning, banks, buyers, and entire industries involved. The land itself with permitting and development fees can easily reach a quarter million dollars per house. This is money spent before you even get to hammer a nail into the first board. Understanding this, however, doesn't keep me from worrying about home ownership becoming attainable for fewer and fewer people and out of reach for people we now call essential workers. My peers aren't making four times what they were a decade ago. Honestly, most of my friends bought their houses long ago and couldn't afford to buy their houses today. Fort Collins' current children are likely to be the first generation who grew up here just a bit too late to buy a house in their adulthood. Maybe they'll come visit, ride the trolley, and get an ice cream cone with the grandparents, telling their own kids about when they grew up here. But then they'll return to wherever it was they could afford to buy a house. Regarding housing prices, a colleague from my time working on housing affordability matter-of-factly once said, Greeley is going to become Fort Collins, Fort Collins will become Boulder, and Boulder will become San Francisco. That was Kurt Lyons reading his essay on a changing Colorado. You can find more information about submitting your own essay at KUNC.org slash MyColorado. That's our show for today. On the next Colorado edition, we'll hear more about how bridges, a sometimes invisible part of our state's transportation infrastructure, are being reframed as historic properties. I'm Henry Zimmerman. Our production staff includes Tess Novotny, Alana Schreiber, and Ray Solomon. We got production help today from Adam Reyes. Brian Larson is our executive producer. And our theme music was composed by Colorado musicians Brianna Harris and Johnny Burroughs. With that, thanks for listening. This is Colorado Edition from KUNC.